Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Hello, you lovely story-shaped listeners. Are you in for a treat today? Myself and Sinead are both beyond excited to welcome the incomparable Frances Harding to the story-shaped hot seat today. And Frances will need very little introduction to you all, but I'm going to give her one nonetheless. Author of 10 brilliant, beautiful and brain-teasing novels, the most recent of which is Unraveler, Winner of the Costa Book of the Year, only the second children's author to win after Philip Pullman, twice nominated for the Carnegie and recipient of numerous other prizes, Frances is nothing less than a national treasure. Frances's books prove how deeply moving, profoundly philosophical and page-turningly wonderful children's books are. Each one of her books circulates around a central emotional or psychological theme, which she tackles in just these fantastically tangible ways, whether that's Curse eggs to look at anger and hurt, giant underwater god monsters to look at fear, or a tree that feeds on lies. Her plots are as intricate and beautiful as lace, and her characters are flawed in such humane ways. And their journeys, particularly their psychological journeys, shed light on the human condition in all its glorious and complicated ways. They show us what it is to live, to learn, to hurt, to dream, to lose, to rage, to fear, to love and to tell stories. When once asked why she was at a loom museum, Frances said, I'm a children's author. I'm interested in everything. So we're here today to find out about what in the beautiful world of story has interested Frances and made her into the magnificent storyteller she is today. So welcome, Frances. Hello, Sinead. We are, we can't wait for this conversation. Huzzah! What a wonderful introduction. Hello, Frances. (laughs) Hello. And thank you very much for that really lovely introduction. Uh, That's going to be hard to follow. (laughs) <laughs> thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you for, so for no. Thank you for thank you for joining us. Um, and we'll I guess we'll start with the question we ask everyone, which is, Francis Harding, are you story shaped? Uh, the answer is of course yes. <laughs> uh, I perhaps am more so than most, since I've always been an addicted reader. Have always submerged my brain in stories in one way or another. And my life has then gone on to be shaped by the stories that I've gone on to tell. But I think we all are. Yeah. We're storytelling and and story comprehending animals. We see the world and our own lives and our own selves in terms of stories. And we tell ourselves stories about ourselves and the things that have happened to us for better or worse. So I also try to be a little bit story aware. Uh, a little aware of the stories that I may be telling myself and perhaps oversimplifying or over slanting reality as it is. 
There's, I've just, I'm just in the middle of reading this book by R Ruth Azeki called The Book of Form and Emptiness, which is absolutely amazing. I recommend it to everyone. There's a book that speaks in the book. And the, there was a line that struck me and it struck me again as you were speaking um, that the book was saying fish live in wa water like and we live in air. We're not aware of the fish aren't aware of the water. And we're not aware of the air, but also humans live in story. And we're not what we like. We breathe story like air. I think that's very true. I think that's a lovely way of pushing it. Yeah. And do you remember the first stories that had an impact on you? I do remember some of them. Uh, I mean, I'm I am told that I adored the hungry caterpillar. I don't remember that <laughs> so well. Uh, but one of the books I do remember at a very early age having a big impact on me was Roald Dahl's James and the Giant Peach. Because I, I, I remember starting it and I was definitely reading independently and 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 it started out in a sort of fairly sort of conventional sort of way with with this this little boy and his lovely parents and the nice little house by the sea. And then his parents go to London where they're eaten by one away rhinoceros. <laughs> I, I, I had to read that several times to be sure that's what it said. And then thought, ooh. <laughs> uh, I, I remember this sense of liberating shock. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yes, I mean, it, was, it was like some window had just banged open in my head. And I realised that this this story wasn't going to be like the others. Yeah, and it happens really quickly in the story too, doesn't it? It happens on the first page. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's about halfway down the first page. And I suddenly realised that all the rules, the little protective rules that I'd, I got used to from stories, didn't apply. Anything could happen. And it was amazing. <laughs> like breaking the fourth wall or stepping out of the fray. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of pictures, you know, medieval illuminations. I always bring stuff back to the Middle Ages, I apologise, um, where you have no, you know, mon mon monstrous creatures that kind of, you know, burst out through the frame and, you know, grip grip the edge of the frame. And it must have been so amazing for a viewer of the time to look at that and go, gosh, you know, he's coming out of the page and he's going to eat me type of thing. So I guess it's the same sort of feeling of of that. Yeah, I should say the, the, the liberation of knowing that a story can do anything and go anywhere and there are no... There are no limits and it can come right out of the book and sort of suck you right in that's that's amazing i love that reaction to to james and the giant peach um a lot of people would tell us that roald dahl has been a huge influence on them um, any any other of his books were important for you francis or was that the was that the one uh, i do i do particularly remember that because it was the first of his i read right uh, i i know i read the whole of charlie and the chocolate factory and the great glass elevator all the way through and then started again and read them all again. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I was the same when I was a child. If there was a book I really loved, I'd read it all the way and then just basically turn it, you know, close it and turn it over and go back to the very beginning again. Um, and did, were you kind of an early reader? I mean, in terms of were you young when you began to read independently? Would that have been? Um... I think I was pretty young. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, certainly my, my parents were very encouraging to us. They 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 read to us from the get go. We, we grew up, me and my sister grew up surrounded by books. And I think apparently even when we were babies, we had cloth books that we could chew. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cute. I remember those books. <laughs> you know, we, we were basically trying to ingest literature from the point <laughs> where we had mouths. You were being fed on books from the day from day one. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I remember buying those kind of books for my own little girl when she was in her pram many years ago. Um, they, they really are a great way to get a baby, you know, to get them kind of used to seeing images and, and text in front of them, even from the very from the very early days. That's really lovely. 
And also, I suppose, not to treat books like these precious objects, that books are there to to play with and to ingest and to love. Absolutely. My parents, my parents literally stopped us just raiding their bookshelves. And in one of the houses where we lived, there were actually a lot of bookshelves stacked ridiculously high, and there was always a ladder up against them. And so I just climbed up and down it, found books that looked interesting and read them. And I definitely remember reading most of The Hound of the Baskervilles perched really high up this ladder. <laughs> well, dangerous. <laughs> that sounds like a dream, a dream childhood. Uh, gosh, I, I'm glad I'm glad your parents were so um, what's the word, supportive or encouraging or, or you know, um, of you and your and your sister as well you know it's it's an amazing it's, it's no I think children really really respond well uh, to that you know to being kind of surrounded by books and kind of being given the freedom to to choose uh, whichever whichever ones they they uh, they like I know I read books as well when I was younger that wouldn't probably have been suitable for my age or my ability but I I think children always kind of know this is not for me yet uh, you know I'll yeah. put it away until I'm ready um I remember, yeah did you did you find that too yeah yeah absolutely um I think younger readers are very good at self-censoring mm-hmm. and say, you know, looking at something and saying, well, you know, as you say, this is not for me yet. Yeah. Um, I think, I think <laughs> from, from what I remember, I did read a couple of books that did have a bit more adult content than, um, than I might necessarily have been handed at that age. However, I don't rec- recollect this suddenly ending my childhood. <laughs> I think I yeah. sort of went, oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and then put back. <laughs> gosh yeah I think I talked before about uh, encountering weird sisters by Terry Pratchett and knowing like I think I was about seven or eight and knowing that I wasn't intelligent enough yet not into, like I didn't I didn't understand all the jokes yet knowing that I would one day get it but I didn't I didn't currently understand it but that I would read it again when I was older and looking forward to today when I knew I'd be clever enough to understand it and, and going back to it when I was older and loving it um I think it's funny how children think so it makes me sad to think about stuff like you know the censoring you know the imposed censorship of books and people you know books being removed from libraries and books being removed mm. from from children's lives it's really it's depressingly upsetting um to think that of all the options and all the you know the i don't know the choice and the and the opportunity that's been denied to children by not not allowing them i suppose to find their own way through um so i'm, I'm glad that we both had that experience <laughs> although i wish i i think a library or our shelves with, with a ladder up is my lifelong dream and goal so You've already you've already achieved that, Francis. <laughs> Just need to go and buy a ladder, Sinead. <laughs> and get over my fear of heights, yes, and my my in, my inherent clumsiness that would have me breaking a bone if I tried to use it. <laughs> but, uh, that would be a dream for sure. Um, what? So after so you read James and the Giant Peach, which showed you that the rules could be broken and that anything was possible and that rhinoceroses could p- kill parents. You read Hound of the Baskervilles up a ladder. What is what was, what were the next significant stories oh, that caught your imagination? So many. Um, <laughs> there, there are so many that I can think of as significant influences. Uh, a big one is Susan Cooper. Oh, wow. Well, we love her. Well, you're, ta- you're talking to the converted here. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, my, my father read, my sister and myself, the whole of the Dark is Rising series, you know, chapter by chapter. Uh, quite often next to a blazing fire oh, which wow. is a lovely way to have that story read to you mm-hmm. uh, so that that series had an enormous effect on my imagination mm-hmm. I think Susan Cooper and Alan Garner between them gave me a sense of the mythic a sense of of folklore 
And Susan Cooper in particular, I think, indelibly shaped my sense of place as well. It left me with a sense that in order to understand the soul of a place, you have to understand its stories. Mm. You have to understand its history and its folk tales and all the rest of it. And that underneath the sort of the mundane version of it that you can see and go shopping in or whatever, there's another older, stranger version that you might almost fall into if you take the right or the wrong step. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm reminded of your of your own book, um, uh, Fair Degree Deep. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I was, you were going to say, because I actually yeah. had recommended that to Susan the other day because she said, I haven't read that one. I said, it's absolutely probably, if I had to pick a favourite, it probably would be my favourite. I absolutely love um, uh, Fair Degree Deep. And it, that's exactly what it is, though, isn't it? It's it's the cur- the undercurrent of something other, you know, beneath the everyday, you know, uh, it's it's a beautiful, it's an amazing book. I haven't read it in years and I must actually pick it up and read it again. But I remember being struck by how like, I guess Cooper or Garner it was when I read it because it's you know in comparison to some of your other books which can be quite I guess you know they're they're long and complex for degree deep is is a a slim volume by your standards you know and it's, yeah. it's not it's not as not as maybe not as complex uh, but not not to say that it's not as amazing a story because it really truly is it really I absolutely love it um so that's that's amazing to hear that you you can trace those those threads back through your your childhood reading oh good I, uh, I mean she she has been an enormous influence uh, uh, on me um i i mean there, there are many writers i can mention as uh, as having shaped my writing but when i list them i tend to list her first Brilliant. yeah and I, I suppose for like susan cooper and alan garner and your books as well they're just they're they show that the myth and the folklore is alive and changing and influencing our world and influencing us and like it's it's not this ancient dead thing it's this ancient living thing living thing yes. yeah absolutely absolutely and and the folkloric stories etc this sort of mythic element it isn't safe no yes it, it isn't sort of fluffy or charming or or picturesque it's it's quite vital and dangerous Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's there's a really dark edge. Um, for for example, in in you know the dark is rising when 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 they travel with her and the hunter, it's okay because Hearn's on their side. But it's a good thing he's on their side yes, because if he wasn't on their side, they'd be really in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So reading those stories yeah. beside a fire is just perfect because that's what fire is. It's like, you know, if it's on your side. Yes. It's great, but it's also. Yeah like a source of huge danger and destruction absolutely, absolutely. And a source of huge myth as well yeah indeed. I love that I love the idea of being read that book by a fire by by a parent that's just an amazing uh, experience um <clears throat> I don't I, I read The Dark is Rising as a, as a child but then I didn't come to the whole sequence until I was uh, in my early 20s um, and I really wish I had read the other books when I was young too, because it would have, you know, as as shaped as I am by Susan Cooper, I would have been even more so if I had read them when I was younger. But so I think books find you at the right time. Though. That's true. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And some books find you repeatedly yeah. in different ways. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Have you any book like that? Is a Susan Cooper and Alan Garner like that, that they find you repeatedly and shape I, I mean, you did... differently I... at different times? I certainly have read them more recently and appreciated them in in different ways i mean well one of the things that surprises me is how compact they are because I know. given yeah. how much space they take up in my head yes yes <laughs> actually 
they're, 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 um, they're, they're, they're masterpieces of concision. Um, yes, it's amazing. <clears throat> which I'm not so good at. So. <laughs> well, it depends. It's funny, we t- we've talked about Alan Garner and Susan Cooper both on the podcast previously, and that's one of the things we've said, and our other guests have said as well, how they achieve so much in such a short space, not short, but in such a, a tight space like they condense so much meaning into some into and I, I don't know it's a skill that I don't think I don't know if anybody has anymore um I certainly it's a style that I don't know whether I've read in any modern book really um it's 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 just it's really of its time maybe or of its of its of its era I don't know but um certainly yeah for sure Alan Garner I mean my favorite Alan Garner is, is Elidor that's the one that shaped my life more most profoundly do you have a favorite Alan Garner mine Francis? is also Elidor Elidor um, yeah it's, it's the first of his I read we've actually given it at school Oh wow! That's amazing, yeah. uh, and I completely fell in love with it. So it it still remains my favorite. Yes, I got it when I was seven, and it's definitely been a, an absolute anchor for me all through my life. Yeah, Even yeah, and it's season. it's that it's what I love about Elador is, and it's also what I love about Verdigree Deep is that you know it's it's that kind of the magic of the wasteland and the magic of rubbish or, or things that have been discarded. Um, and how those kind of things are mythic as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it's always the unregarded places that are a bit more interesting. The, the the things that are neither one thing or another. The places where people's attention are not quite so focused. Mm. I always find those imaginatively very appealing and um, and fertile. Yeah, it's like the wilds and Unraveler. Yes. <laughs> Unraveler is an amazing book. My gosh. I don't know. Sometimes I, I, I'd love to see. I, I, I wish you were, I wish you were like a, a National Trust property or something like that, so that we could take. <laughs> I we, love could buy, we could buy a ticket to your imagination <laughs> for a day. Just kind of sit there and let it all, you know, swirl around us and, and then leave feeling inspired, you know, <laughs> without taking away anything from you, of course. Um, but uh, I just think you're, you're just incredible the way you, you come up with it. I mean, you must just be a person who takes inspiration from everywhere. I mean, you know, you must be constantly kind of thinking, of, I don't know, uh, thinking of things or stuff is always kind of constantly dropping into your imagination from, you must be like, like me, like a champion daydreamer, just, you know, always, always on the on the prowl for, for new ideas and new stories because they just seem to be so wide ranging. You know, your your novels seem to be so, they just take in so much. Um, and as but as Susan said at the beginning, like you know, they 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 focus so deeply on on emotions and on in the psychological states as well, which really helps to, I suppose, <clears throat> to bring the reader through. Even though the world might be quite complex, you know, you always have this emotional or psychological focus. You know that you that's and that's how you navigate the story. Um, but I really just I really admire um, your style, and it's great to know that you have a you have a, a basis in Alan Garner and Susan Cooper too, because they're two of my absolute idols. <laughs> Well, they are extremely and and yet it is certainly true that I do have the sort of brain that sort of is a deranged scavenger creature. But I think that's true of lots of us. Yeah. <laughs> the, way I've, the way I've often described it is most authors have a bit of their brain that's like a deranged magpie. Yes. <laughs> We're just continually looking through um, everything in our life looking for shiny things that we can potentially yes. take away, um, stuff in the nest for later and maybe make into a story. Um, including even the more traumatic elements of our of our own lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sometimes I'll be going through a difficult time, and part of my brain was going, "You should take notes." <laughs> <laughs> Have you noticed your physical reactions are very interesting right now? 
that's so funny. <laughs> well, go brain, continue, continue, because we all we need more fast starting stories. <laughs> um, God, well, yeah, that's me as well. I'm always, I always tell, you know, when people say, where do you get your ideas from? I'm just kind of like everywhere. I just, I just look around and there's about 10 million, you know, whenever you, wherever you look, there's a story. If you have, if you have eyes to see it, you know. Um, but I just I love that in your books that sometimes things can feel like they just come from all over the place. I mean, you know, you have, you have obviously your books are so well constructed that they seem completely organic and seamless in the novel. But I as a, as a, as, an, as a fellow author, I suppose I'm looking at them going, that is incredible that she could take an idea from here and an idea from here and an influence from here and, and weave them all so well into this into this brand new story. I really admire your your skill and your your talent to do that. Um, was there was there a book that made you a writer or mm. is that too like cause sometimes when I ask that question writers are like well no, it's just story in general but and sometimes writers are like no it was this specific book that that said that gave me the permission or that that made me think I have to do this yeah I think there were lots there are lots to be honest I think I think there were a number of books that gave me permission for different parts of my brain mm-hmm. if okay. that makes sense yeah yeah um so I think I think Alice in Wonderland gave me <laughs> permission for a lot of my imagination's fundamental strangeness and and possibly the subversive strangeness <laughs> and and the sense that you know that the story doesn't actually have to be st- um, um, structured in any particular kind of way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to make a literal sense. It doesn't necessarily have to have a hard and easily defined moral, etc. I mean, obviously, I didn't. I I didn't quantify it in these terms. I just knew that I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think that embedded itself in my head on some level. Uh, and, th- and then there were there were some books that gave me permission for my sense of humour. So, for example, when I was sixteen, my father handed me the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, and said, "I think you're ready for this now." <laughs> oh. And I I always get the get the the feeling that he he'd been waiting to do that. <laughs> And, and he was right. watching you and seeing, okay, okay, yes. today's the day. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But the the anarchic nature of the sense of humour completely appealed to me. It's like, hooray, somebody else thinks like me. And simply when I was, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years later at school, a friend of mine uh, handed me The Colour of Magic by Terry Pratchett and said, it's weird, you'll like it. <laughs> I love it. And she was, in fact, completely uh, correct. And again, uh Immediately fell in love with Terry Pratchett. Not just the uh, the anarchic nature of the humour, but the the richness of imagination and the humanity <laughs> that that imbues everything uh, and constructive anger. Constructive <laughs> anger. anger. Yes. I Absolutely. love that. Um, so again, I, I, I think he very much gave me permission for my sense of humour. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that because yeah, there's so, sometimes you just reach a point in your life where you feel as though you need someone to sort of show you the way. I suppose I like I was like that. You know, as as a child, I really wanted to write and I wanted to create, but I didn't feel as though I had permission because nobody I had ever seen or known, or you know, I had never encountered an author that sort of was like me or that seemed to seem to reflect me in in their pages. You know, so it's wonderful to reach a point where you find an author that goes, yeah, 
I'm weird like you. Here's my hand. Let's let's walk together. <laughs> and uh, I love that. So I'm really, really glad you've met. And I love all those books that you've mentioned, um, particularly Terry Pratchett, who's been a massive influence on me as well. Perhaps not in my work, but uh, in my certainly in my life. And I love the way you've drawn attention to his humanity. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's so important. You know, he was such a I wish I'd met I wish I'd met him. He was he was such an idol to me, but um just such a humane and kind and fair minded um man i guess and and also creator you know um, i think we lost we lost a major star when we lost him uh sadly um but i'm really glad that you've you're you're a fan too <laughs> oh completely and i only met him very briefly twice once in a signing queue but i think I, because his personality comes so strongly in the books I think a lot of us sort of felt like we lost a friend when mm. when yes when yes absolutely uh, I, i'm yeah. i know that i wasn't remotely an outlier in in you know bursting into tears when they read mm-hmm. the news you know right mm-hmm. at their computer <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah definitely I was I was standing in the kitchen and I cried for half an hour when I heard the yeah. news that he had passed it was awful yeah and we and we all yeah. you know even though it wasn't exactly unexpected mm. it's still you know, a blow yes yeah, yeah it's still a loss and then that like the knowledge as well that there won't be any more of those stories yeah it took me a while to read his last book because I knew that would be it then you know there'd be there'd be no more so and again I'm not, I'm not unique in that I think everybody felt the same way um but certainly he's he's been a massive shaper in my life too um <clears throat> and your your style Francis is I suppose unique is the way I would describe it uh although in fairness some of your books are like we've talked about vertically deep being slightly different to maybe your other books and they're not they're not all exactly the same I mean I could I could speak to you know um I guess Cuckoo Song is another one of my favorites of yours which is while it has obviously fantastical elements it also has a very much a, a real a realistic grounding in the you know in the in the family um and and the setting that you chose for it um but um what was I going to ask you now um oh yeah do you have any other any books that you could point to or any authors you could point to that have shaped the, the way that you write stories or um you know any any influences on, on the actual way that you go about creating a creating a book and I suppose I have a secondary question to that related mm-hmm. to Her Degree Deep, which is because that felt like there felt like there was echoes of Diana Wynne Jones there. Was oh, yeah. Diana Wynne Jones an influence? We were hoping <laughs> might influence uh, her too. Diana Wynne Jones is uh, an author that I'd, I'd read one or two books of hers. I'd read The Time of the Ghost, which I loved. Uh, and she's clearly an author that I should have read more of as a child <laughs> because I would absolutely have loved her. Um, but I actually read more of her books when I was an adult. So uh, I'm, I mean, she's she is amazing, mm-hmm. and I I sort of want to go back in time and give more of my more of her books <laughs> to younger me. Yeah, the same way you feel about Alan, and I didn't read Alan Garner when I was a child. Um, they just never they were just not circulating around West Cork. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but but again, maybe you found them at the right time for you. Yeah, well, I'm glad I have. I'm glad I have at least read them. <laughs> um, oh, the, yeah. the other question was, about, oh, the other question style. was about style and which yeah. books influence the the way I write books. Again, mm-hmm. I think there are quite a lot of those. I I I know there are certainly uh, some some books that, again, let's talk about permission, that gave me permission to do strange things with language and mm-hmm. be a bit experimental. Uh, a lot of the books that my father read to us 
was The Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber. Brilliant. Which which is so much fun uh, mm -hmm. in, in a, a dark and very eccentric way and does play around with language a lot. You know, you, you have you have threats that someone will be slipped from their guggle to their zatch. <laughs> and and there's a, a dread creature called the toadle uh, that smells like unopened rooms. And, oh, um, and it moves like shadows and like monkeys. And it's made of lip and it gleeps. And it, it never specifies what gleeping is, but it's probably bad. Mm -hmm. well, there you go. There, I mean, this this is exactly what we get in your books as well, isn't it? That amazing command of imagery and language. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I wrote a review of one of your books years ago on my blog, and I said something like your 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 sentences were like you know sleek otters, you know, in a in a river, just kind of you know, flowing over one another, just I and just carrying me away into your story world. I mean, you really have a command of language that's unlike I think anybody that I've ever read. But James Herbert probably would come close. <laughs> So I'm glad to hear he's an influence on you. Um, he's certainly influential on a lot of authors. I think Neil Gaiman mentions him as one of his favourite authors as well. Um, so cool. I have not read that book, but I am going to read it right after this call. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's sort of a very dark, very small, relatively dark, very strange fairy tale. Yeah, it's and right it has up a my character street. with an indescribable hat. Ooh. <laughs> and of course... Francis and hats are indistinguishable as well. She's a she's definitely a hatted author, um, so that's uh, that's another interesting interesting uh, parallel. Um, I haven't read that book in years. Actually, I do have a copy downstairs, a really nice copy that I got when I was younger. But I I have I I won't say I've forgotten it, but it's not it's not fresh in my mem in my memory. Um, but I keep meaning to bring it out and show it to my own kid to see. Hi, would you like this? I wonder would this be something you'd are enjoy. Are you ready? Are you ready? Um, yes. Are you ready for this? Yes. <laughs> so maybe we'll read that together someday. Um, um, are there books that shaped your life in general, not necessarily your style or your writing life, but books that, that shifted your life in different directions? I'm sure there were. I mean, I think they probably all did in mm -hmm. different ways. Um, in terms of some of the, the my early literary role models, I, I'm, I'm sure those had sort of an influence. Uh, when, when I was reading... Tove Janssen's Room and Troll books. I loved snacking. And so I had this role model who doesn't say still much, who has this perpetual restlessness, who is free in a, in the way that a lot of the other characters aren't. Mm. And he wears a hat, which is, <laughs> which is also good. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> but I, I, I think that has probably fed into my my general sense of wanderlust mm. and my desire not to be penned in. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I think that that's lasted. Um, my general love of stories definitely have affected my life. <laughs> um, mm. yeah. When I was getting ready to go to university, I... I had great difficulty deciding what I was going to study. And after some puzzling over you know, looking at the A-levels I picked, et cetera, and trying to think about what was a sensible career, I I decided that law, law was probably a good idea. That that, that seemed that seemed sort of reasonable, constructive, and so forth. And then I realized I was getting very down about the prospect of going to university. 
And it was only when I was actually quite close to applying to universities that I realised that I have absolutely no interest in law whatsoever. And then I thought, maybe I'd better not do that. But I didn't, I didn't know what I did want to build towards. I didn't know really what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I studied English because I knew it was something that I could... I could really enjoy doing for three years and then I thought well okay I'll just I'll do that and I'll work out what sensible thing I'm going to do as a job afterwards and so I threw myself happily back into the waiting arms of my stories again. <laughs> that sounds very similar to my experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah I'm just relating on a deep level here. Yeah I was like what am I going to do my mum kept going you should do architecture you should do architecture and I was like I don't want to do architecture my buildings would all fall down and I don't, I don't want to do that <laughs> the only thing I could think that I wanted to do was was well, like spend time with books and stories and and then I went to university and then I didn't leave for a long time <laughs> <laughs> yes but it was very safe <laughs> yeah yeah exactly me too I, I went with the intention of becoming a psychologist I think um, or possibly a teacher um, and then when I discovered how much I loved English, or I, when I give myself, I suppose it's again about permission, isn't it? When I give myself permission to enjoy English as a subject and to really get into it, I decided, no, this, this is where my life is going to be, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, I'm married to the subject. Um, and uh, yeah, because definitely it's not it's not something that I would do for financial gain, but uh, certainly being around stories is what I wanted to do. And I'm just delighted that I get to do it, you know. Um, so I'm glad we all listened to that little voice. Yeah. <laughs> I really mm. like this idea of story role models. That Snufkin mm. was a role model. Do you have any other role models? Um, yes, probably quite a few. Uh, <laughs> well, another another of the books that I have come back to repeatedly at different ages is um, is Watership Down by Richard Adams. Oh wow! And that again had. A huge influence me. I mean, it it was it was my first epic, mm. and mm. it became my my favourite book when I was was ten years old. Uh, I I don't know how many parents have thought, oh, it's got a bunny on the cover, and had it their children <laughs> without, yeah. without realizing that you know it's got the massacre of an entire community and two dystopias mm. and a war and punitive mutilation and betrayal and daring rescues and etc. Um, and a mythos. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, when I go back, I'm fascinated by the way he's building this, these societies and the myths and doing all this within parameters where, well, you know, your protagonists, most of them can't, can't, can't count past four. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, only, only, only the really, really smart one who can count to five can just about manage things like concept of tool use. <laughs> Um, and I think I think a, a significant number of the characters in that book became role models to me in in one way or another because they are absolutely you know, they are the the epitome of the underdog or under rabbit because every they are smaller than everything they are bunnies mm -hmm. they have no opposable thumbs everything wants to eat them or exterminate them and. And so I came out of I came out of that with my main role models being Blackberry, who is the smart bunny who count to five and is their cute vision. <laughs> he understands <laughs> things can float. Um, 
Hazel, obviously, the main character, the one who has, well, he doesn't have visions like his, like, like Fiverr, but he has vision mm. and mm -hmm. compassion and strength of character. And his developing role as a leader, as a, as a consequence of that, uh, is is inspiring. But I also I also liked Bigwig because he has an arc, because he helped me understand the way you can develop and change, and your perspectives can mature. I love the way I love I love how you, how how deeply you can relate yourself to these characters and how how good your recall is as well. I don't know. I I read Watchtown at the, at a similar age, but I think I've blocked blocked it out due to trauma. I, think I found it possibly. very traumatic as well. I haven't yeah. been back <clears throat> there since, but I think I need to. I think I need to go back and I think it's one I need to revisit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mine is that mine. I know exactly where my one is. I know exactly what part of the shelf it's on. It's kind of like waiting for me to come back to it when I'm ready. So maybe I I might choose today to be ready. Yeah. Can I ask you a, 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 what's a quite like a, a self-indulgent question, perhaps? Um, I, I love the setting of A Face Like Glass. I love the whole concept behind A Face Like Glass. Um, was there anything you could point to that that influenced you or inspired you to come up with a society of people who, you know, don't make facial expressions? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just a it was a, an incredible work of uh, fiction. I love that. One. Thank you very much. Um, now, in the case of in the case of Caverna and the fact that people do not have natural expressions, I don't know. It is it is one of those cases where it had been an idea that had been hanging around right. in the back of my head for a long time, waiting for, for me to find other ideas to combine it with. Love that. Yeah. And then and then <clears throat> they sort of face like glass is fundamentally the combination of three different ideas that I'd had for a while. That, that clearly weren't complete, complete stories in themselves, but which all sort of chemically reacted to each other as soon as I thought of combine, um, combining them, at which point they started generating background and story and so forth. And the three ideas were this, this idea of a place where people do not have natural expressions, effectively a city full of perfect liars in which there was one girl who cannot lie. That was one of the ideas. The other idea was a labyrinthine underground city, possibly sentient with unreliable topology, um, which the inhabitants aren't allowed to leave, which outsiders aren't allowed to enter. Uh, the third idea was the idea of some people who can create delicacies that are so exquisite that their effects are almost like magic. So cheeses that give you visions, mind control perfumes, uh, wine that you can drink to forget or to remember in a relatively well honed sort of a way. Um, those those were the three different story elements that wouldn't have held up a book by themselves, but became a lot more interesting when I combined them. Um, and I can't quite remember where the faces came from. Uh, <laughs> Or maybe just from the, your, your own brilliant mind, I'd say. <laughs> maybe it's unique to you. I love that book. 
Is that when you know you've got a book, when these ideas combine and then something happens and it just generates material? There's like some, yeah, I, I love that idea of like this chemical reaction. Yeah, alchemy, maybe, yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, there's, there's only been one occasion I can think of where I have had what I know is the heart of a book. And just thought, right, that 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 is definitely the kernel of a book. I now just need to know what what to what to do with it. Usually, it is, as I say, some half ideas I've had for a while interacting with each other. Uh, the one occasion where I have had the uh, the light bulb moment was with the light tree, uh, uh, where I was I was taking a walk along the Thames, and I was just halfway across the the lock near Isleworth. Uh, when I had the idea of this this tree that you could whisper a lie to it, and then if you get as many people as possible to believe that lie, it will bear a fruit. And if you eat that fruit, you learn an important secret. And no, I cannot remember the train of thought that led up to this. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember stopping on that bridge and knowing <clears throat> that I had the kernel of a story. And also knowing that at that point, I had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> I then had I'm to find Yes. So and probably no pen or paper to write it down with as well. This is what I always think. We always have these great ideas when you're in the shower or when you're doing something you can't you can't distract yourself from or when you've no, nothing to write it down with or nothing to write nothing to write on. Um, so walking halfway across, across a bridge, I think that's a great place to. <laughs> it sounds like a great place to get an idea. Yeah, but I'm glad you remembered it until you got home. Do you <laughs> do you read while you're writing, or are you one of the writers who can't read other books when you're when you're in the middle of your own one? Um, I do a bit, but it tends to be on, on things like public transport. So, I mean, I I generally read on public transport because I don't have a smartphone. And I know that's generally when most people have their smartphones, <laughs> I read. Um, if I'm at home, I am less likely to to be reading if I'm in a really intense writing push. Though that's less because I don't want the book influencing my writing and more because I feel guilty that I'm reading and not writing <laughs> because I have a deadline I really should be writing um is there anything is there anything that's shaping you right now any books any stories that are shaping you currently oh in terms of books I've been reading recently uh, I recently read The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden and I've also I've just finished the sequel to that, The Girl in the Tower. Um, I've also read Her Dark Wings by Melinda Salisbury and Later in the Blue Fox, Fox by Kieran Millwood Hargrave, uh, all of which I very much enjoyed. I'm, I'm, they're all on my to be read pile, which is huge. <laughs> I have the I have the Catherine Arden books downstairs. I haven't read them yet, but I, um, I intend to get to all of those. Um, they sound they all sound amazing. Um, and if you were to think about your own books, um, or rather your own readers, I guess, Francis, do you ever does it ever cross your mind that you your own work might shape readers in a, in any particular way? Um, how 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 would you hope, or how do you hope that your work might inspire or shape the readers that encounter it? Does that ever? Well, occur? I am I am primarily a storyteller uh, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm I certainly hope they enjoy the books whether it's yeah. whether it's by uh finding them exciting or scary or interesting or 
fun or funny or whatever. Um, I don't tend to come up with a message of manifesto and then try to disguise it as a story. The, the story does come first, but my concerns, my opinions, my interests, the things that make me angry or sad or curious or that I feel strongly about, of course, those come through in my work because that happens when you're trying to write with sincerity. And often, often I'll be exploring uh, emotionally loaded or difficult or dark subjects rather than providing an easy moral, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And it's, it's much an exploration on my part that, um, that I'm asking the reader to kind of accompany with, me, me with rather than um, rather than me saying, and now I shall shape your brain in this way. Um, if my books do have consistent morals, then it's probably going to be something like think for yourself. Don't let anybody else tell you what to think, including me. <laughs> um, also, things are complicated. People are complicated. Uh, people sometimes are wrong-headed or, or do bad things, but it's not useful to just decide that they're evil or stupid. People do things for reasons and, and justify things themselves. You know, I guess I have an entrenched belief in the importance of compassion and curiosity and empathy and tolerance and a desire to understand. Brilliant. Well, those are great things to be bestowing upon your, your readers. I guess I was thinking it when I was asking the question about Terry Pratchett and how he said earlier that he was such a such a human, such a humane man, you know, um, and, and had always this the same as you, the sense of kind of, you know, fairness and equality and, and tolerance in his books. And I think even though everybody reads his books for the beautiful, amazing, hilarious stories that are contained within them, we all do come away with a sense of being better people <laughs> for having read Terry Pratchett, at least at least that's, that's how I feel. Um, and so I think a sim uh, you would have a similar impact on <clears throat> on me anyway. You know, I, I come away being amazed and blown away by the structure of your books and the power of your 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 world building and everything else, but also with a deep sense of the justice in your stories and the fairness and the the compassion for your characters. And you know, so I think you've definitely achieved all those wonderful aims. Um, I don't mean to say that people write stories with 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 moralistic you know tendencies or or, or you know with the intent I suppose to shape a person in, in a deliberate way, but um that's that's what that's kind of what I mean. You've you've got to the kernel of what I mean. How how you would hope to maybe put forward your own your own beliefs or your own values in a book um as as a secondary concern to your to your plot. But you know I think when you read a book by a person like yourself, um you do come away from it feeling not only inspired and and full of admiration for the story, but also slightly improved as a person. So I think that's great. I'm really glad to <laughs> have a chance to tell you that in person. Oh. Yeah, and that idea that <laughs> things are complicated and people are yeah. complicated. I think yeah. that's such a useful thing for, for anyone to, to know. understand yeah. and be reminded yeah. of continuously as well. Yeah, for well, sure. Thank you, very, thank you both very much. I'm, I'm going to be leaving this podcast with a much bigger head. <laughs> good that's what we're that's what we're here for <laughs> can I ask a question that I don't actually normally ask but you've inspired me by our discussions about literary role models and I want to know 
who you would invite to your literary dinner party? What characters you would want to spend an evening with? <laughs> uh, I, there's, there's lots of people. That you can have as I, many as you like. <laughs> have I mean, a party. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I mean, I definitely, I definitely want to invite Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how how um, Charlotte Bronte would get on with the party, but I, you know, I'd invite her anyway. Fielding <laughs> would be fun. I'd want Wilkie Collins along. And what about characters, like characters, oh, characters. books? Yeah, well, um, Snufkin's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh goodness, it's a harder one. There's there's too many there's too many to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd want to probably drag in from some, some from. Oh goodness, the thing is, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of characters I loved as a child would be children, so I think they'd be a little bit confused to be invited to a dinner party. Probably. Um, we turn into I, a, we turn, I, turn into a cake fight pretty quickly, maybe. <laughs> I, I did occasionally have discussions with a friend of mine. Uh, about who we'd have on our literary pub call, but that was very much talking about authors. Mm. And we decided Byron wasn't coming. Who's not coming? Byron. Byron's not Byron's coming. Not coming. Oh, no, 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 don't no. invite that would him. Be, that's a good idea. I think <laughs> I should bring him. <laughs> Keats can come. We're fine with Keats. Keats is good. Yes, I agree with that. I have another question. If you could interview a writer about their favourite, about their books that shaped, the stories that shaped them, who would you most like to find out about their story shaped life? Oh, that's a very difficult question. Mm. Um, my answer to that one would be Francis Harding, so I'm glad to be here today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've fulfilled our dreams. <laughs> there's, there's one answer I'd be um, tempted to give, but for entirely the wrong reason. Go for um, it. Well, there's, there's one author I haven't mentioned who very definitely was an inspiration to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my granddad, oh. um, my my mother's father. Uh, he he wrote under the name H Mills West, and he actually got, basically he was uh, a member of quite a poor family in Suffolk, and like a lot of his generation, he had to leave school at fourteen because his family needed need him to go and work. Uh, but he was extremely smart, so he continued self educating, and his. His um, school teacher, as far as I can tell, just kept lending him books. And <laughs> he managed to get to the point where he was able to get into teacher training college and became a teacher. And then started writing in his free time. Got lots of short stories published in the local paper. Uh, and, and then ultimately got, got books published. In fact, I think he got about a dozen books published. So I'm, I'm still playing catch up. Uh, <laughs> all of this, I think, is nearly there. <laughs> for someone who left school at 14. That's amazing. So I'm tempted to pick him so I can see my granddad again. Oh, that's a oh, great answer. That. That's a beautiful answer. Oh, gosh. H. Mills West, I'm going to write that down. Well, I'm really glad you had that inspiration and you had that uh, that lineage in your family. I mean, God, no wonder you're as brilliant as you are with a, with a, a character like your granddad in your in your lineage. That's amazing to have come from, as you say, to being being forced out of education at 14 like most people I mean my grandparents were the same younger even um you know but to, to get from that point to being a teacher and a published author and an influence over one of the finest writers of her generation I mean how how much more could anyone wish for that's that's amazing so we salute you H Mills West <laughs> 
So my, my final question for you, Francis, is if you are able to tell us about anything that you have on your writing slate, any upcoming projects, if you are free to discuss, uh, even hints would be good. Um, and if you're not free to discuss, that's obviously fine. We don't want anyone to get in trouble with your publisher. But um, what are you working on at the moment? I'm, I I can only say a little. I'm afraid I'm going to be annoyingly mysterious. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> um, I have been working on something else that should be coming out uh, this autumn, if all goes well. Brilliant. And um, suffice to say that my contribution will be shorter than usual, which, which is probably a very good thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but beyond that, I don't think I should say too much more. Okay. Only that, you know, again, as usual, it's it's dark. And <laughs> shall we say gothic leaning? Excellent. Well, those those little hints are enough to keep anyone who is a fan of your work. Uh, uh, you know, we're we're on the hook and we can't wait for it. So I know I'm I'm going to pre-order straight away as soon as as soon as I can. Um, it's uh, I love your work and it's been just an absolute pleasure to speak to you um, and to get to know you a bit better and to get to know your the, the shaping that has, you know, that you have all your life that the books have had on you. Sorry, I'm losing track of my words because I'm so overwhelmed here. Um, it's amazing to have gone through some of the books that have shaped you um, all through your life, uh, some surprising ones and some ones that I expected to say. Uh, um, but I'm just really glad to have got to this insight into you and into your your work and your your process um so thank you very much for your generosity and for your time uh really really appreciate it and i think that all the books that they all <clears throat> share like a humanity mm -hmm. but an anarchic sense of like joy and revelry yeah celebration in the power of story and power mm -hmm. of language maybe yeah um, and certainly you've you've shaped me um, and you've probably shaped Susan too. Absolutely. And uh, many, 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 many thousands of others. Uh, so thank you so much for all the, all your work and all, and all your future work. Um, you're basically a genius. So I salute you. <laughs> Both very much indeed. And, and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank um, you very much. So I suppose until next time, we should say farewell and adieu to everybody. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Story Shaped. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as Susan and I have. Um, and that we shall be back uh, with another episode very soon and another fancy, fancy, wonderful, shiny new guest. Um, but until then, we should say thank you very much for listening um, and do try to share the episode and, and or rate or review it if you can. Um, and make sure and come back and join us next time. Um, and from me, it is farewell. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Bye-bye, Story Shapers. See you another time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. <laughs>